Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome, Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted, built, and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. This is episode 95. Thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. The phrase, it's an art, not a science, is one that we often hear in life while trying to master something because it requires creativity and flexibility without being constrained by certain parameters. And our guest this episode, Sean Foley, lives this each day as one of the most well-known and respected golf coaches on the PGA Tour. After playing golf at Tennessee State University, Sean would leave Canada and embark on a journey where he would coach some of the top names in golf like Justin Rose, Tiger Woods, Hunter Mahan, Sean O'Hare, and Stephen Ames. You can also find him in Orlando as the Director of Performance at the Foley Performance Academy at Eagles Dream. And if you're a golfer, then you've probably seen him providing instruction through Revolution Golf, founded by Justin Tupper as part of the Elite Instructors. Here's episode 95 with Sean Foley. Sean, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast with me here. I greatly appreciate it, and it's an honor to have you on the podcast. And I I know you're obviously a very successful coach, travel a lot, you know, on the PGA Tour and uh, helping all of these professionals. But how often is it that when you're traveling, people come up to you, hey, Sean Foley, I need some help. Can you help me out with a few tips here? (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, it's quite often. We'll we'll say this, it's it's more often than when I was teaching golf and uh, waiting tables. So um, I think I, many times I'll be with people when it happens and they're like, God, that must get so annoying. And I think that, you know, as long as you constantly kind of remember where you came from, I think 11 years ago, if you told me that one of the things that I would have to deal with would be people coming up wanting to take a picture and I probably would have paid you for it. You know what I mean? So it's, yeah, it's just interesting to me. The fact is, is that, I could have stayed in Toronto, Canada, and uh, kept my ambitions where they were, and it would, I would, none of this stuff would ever be a concern. But it's, it's not, uh, uh, it's not a big deal. People are, people are normally nice. I think, I constantly still think it's like really weird to me because I think, I think when you want to be great at something, you're probably always very critical of what you're doing and how you're doing it. So I don't really see the allure, but you know, I just play along. <laughs> well, so how do you define success or greatness? As you just mentioned, that you sometimes question it. So how do you define it? I question it nonstop. I mean, my my ultimate kind of mantra is, you know, is, is not much different than a physician. Is just do no harm. So um, when I'm working with one of my players and I say I want to maybe attempt to do something with them, I think like how many ways could this hurt them before it helps them? And I think a lot of times if I keep them safe from doing the wrong things uh, with their brilliant, intuitive, kinesthetic, you know, brains, they'll find the right way to do it. So I think it's, gosh, it's just, it's absolutely changed, you know, so much uh, from, re- from, you know, being maybe 20 years ago to thinking that uh, I had a real good idea of how I wanted people to swing. And, and now what I have is, you know, I have these principles that are relatable to everyone, but 
the style that everyone learns them in and then the style that everyone moves in is different. So it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's kind of like uh, having a tailor, you know, being a tailor and the, the principles um, would be like the fine material, but you got to design that suit different to everyone. And that, I think that that's kind of the, that's where the art comes in is realizing that Kevin Chapel and Danny Willett are physiologically so different. One has strengths in certain areas. The other one has strengths in certain areas. Uh, if you teach one thing to one of them and it really helps them, if you just then teach it to the next guy, it's not going to help them at all. So, you know, it's about having a, you know, a sensitive mind and realizing, really trying to learn um, your, your guy down to like, what type of music does he listen to? Um, you know, does he read? Does he not read? Is he conservative, liberal? It's, it's just about, gosh, it's so much about knowing the human. Um, that's the most important part. And that's just, that's every relationship that, you know, that's how I, I look, I look at it now, but I think anyone perceived at the top of what they do feel behind in their own mind. I mean, when Jeff Bezos got to 10 billion, like, was that not enough? It's like what, 150 billion now. Right. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, one of my players, Justin Rose, he's in his generation. He's had one of the greatest careers. He still shows up at work every day. Um, like he hasn't accomplished anything yet. So where's that, where's that hunger come from? It's obviously not because of boats and planes and cars. Cause that, that's already, you know, you know what I mean? Like that's already accomplished. You know what I mean? Yes. And so where does that hunger come from for you growing up? How was the Foley household and how it shaped you in terms of this hunger, this drive, this competition and getting into golf? I'm not really sure, to be honest, because I've always been like an intense person. Um, but intense in my kind of way I go about things, but not, not, not a stressed out person, but in, intense. And I guess... You know, I enjoyed being around people. I loved hitting golf balls. Um, I wasn't like overly into the kind of the established bureaucratic world. I couldn't see myself working in an office or anything like that. Um, and then I've never, I've never really done well with having bosses. So <laughs> I think just, I, I think just my overall curiosity in the game of golf, because it's like, I think golf of all the sports is probably the best microcosm for life because it, it is just you. And even if you have a team around you, when push comes to shove, it's just you. <laughs> and so um, I've always been fascinated by that aspect of it and just all the variables that go into performance and, you know, how many times you can hit a great shot and get a bad break. You can be a good person and get rear-ended in your car. I mean, there's it, it, the, the parallels are so so much there. Um, I just look at that as I know golf's always had the other aspect of being a, an elite game and an expensive game, but that wasn't how I came up in it at all. Like I worked at golf courses. I cleaned clubs. I cut greens. I worked in the back shop. Um, I worked in the junior program. I taught lessons in the women's clinics. So that's the greatest thing that my dad ever did was he just never handed it to me. Um, so it was kind of more of a love of that. It wasn't really signing my dad's chit every day. You know what I mean? So it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm appreciative that he recognized that he wanted me to work for it if it mattered to me. And uh, I do the same thing with my own sons. And, you know, 
doesn't really put you in their favorite spot. But I think sometimes what my dad taught me as far as parenting goes is that sometimes when I had like great disdain for him, he was absolutely doing a perfect job. It's not about being my best friend, you know, it's about preparing me um, for what is a dog eat dog world. Yes. And there has to be times where you allow them to fail. Oh, I mean, nonstop. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is like failure is just, it's just the wrong word, right? Like we're in a society who talk about fear of success, fear of failure. Like what's the difference? Like that's not even what it is anyways, right? That's just, that's some ridiculous psychological nonsense. It's, It's not about that. It's like technically if you fail, you see it from the right lens. It's just feedback, right? So it's just showing me where I need to improve. Unfortunately, in sports and golf and things like that, it's really difficult to simulate what it's going to feel like on the back nine at Augusta in practice. So the only way you can technically learn about the back nine at Augusta is to be in the back nine at Augusta. So, I mean, the greatest players of their generation will probably only be able to do that seven, eight times. So it's not easy, you know? Not even close. And so how do you try to replicate that then when you're out coaching these guys? You just can't, really. I mean, you you just can't. I mean, I think what happens is, you know, for the most part, when people get under pressure, and it's not like pressure not coming from outside of them. I think when people say, man, he's under pressure, it's like we think there's a puppeteer in the sky, you know, like pulling on strings. But really, that pressure is coming from all the dreams of being in that moment as a young kid and all those planted seeds of anticipation that in that moment are recognized and become slightly like anxiety, just that everything speeds up. Everything speeds up. The mind gets busier. Um, I think when the mind is busy, that's really just a way of, in science of saying there's tension, right? And so it's just realizing like, what do you do in that moment? I think there's the issues too often are, um, you know, when you get like this, do this, like the 10 steps to being calm, which is I think if you have a chance to win a master's and you're calm, you're probably not even alive. So <laughs> it's, I think it's more about embracing, okay, I feel like this right now. And it's okay to feel like this. that's the thing I go over with my kids all the time that I coach is, you know, they're like, you know, I got, I got really nervous and made some mistakes. And it's like, all right, remember that one tournament you won that big tournament? Were you nervous? Yeah. I almost threw up on the last hole. So how'd you win that one? Well, I was told those were like good nerves and these were bad nerves. It's like, no, that's such a bad way to look at it. It's just, it's just nerves, right? I mean, so when I, you know, I remember when my first son was being born, I mean, being calm went out the window. Like, no way. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yes. I remember my first son being like, born as well. <laughs> right. I remember, I remember getting, I remember getting married and being like, Everyone was like, man, you're so at ease and all that. And then that day came and I was just like, whoa. <laughs> and so that's, that's the thing is one of the most difficult things to do is to hold a 10-footer to win the British Open when you hold 1,000 when you were 12 years old. It's such a big deal to you that when you add extreme value to something, the brain is, is very good at recognizing that and that big moment and that big day, which has just been a generation of your perception, right? A day is a day. Like one of my friends said to me, one of the guys I coached, you know, we had a a real big opportunity to win a big tournament. 
And he said, you know, today's going to be a long day. And I said, today's going to be 24 hours, but every day is. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's going to be, it's going to be your narrative and your story. That's going to change the perception of time. Time is, time is really not time is just time, right? Yes. So it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's such a, I think as time has gone on, kind of my interest in philosophy and things like that has helped me as much as my interest in the sciences that uh, give us more understanding of what the club is doing as the player is throwing it, you know, around him. So I think, and I think if you look at, at coaching period, um, I mean, look at John Wooden, how he thought it was a big deal that the guys knew how to put their socks on and tie their shoes because they were going to lose a lot of hours of work if they had really bad blisters. I mean, it's brilliant. It's like he, he just knew if Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had a chance to stay healthy that each day he would just get better. It wasn't like he did all these things to make him better. He just taught him to be a pro. And being a pro meant they wore suits around campus. They were always they were always detailed. They were always on time. Just doing – you know, Tiger Woods' career is a function of all these really small things done well over and over that is a giant mountain of work at the end. But it's just it's just all these small things done um, to professional detail. Yes, that's so true. And so you have to go through this journey, obviously. These guys go through their own journey, and you have as well. So getting to the United States, what was that journey like as growing up in Canada? And I know you moved around some, but what was that journey like for you to, to get on this pathway where you are now? Um, I, well, I, I knew that I had to be down here, um, you know, to, to have it, to have an attempt at professional golf that I had to be down here. It was like, you know, people, people aren't overly knowledgeable about Canada. So I'm, I'm sure if, if a lot of people didn't know we had a prime minister, they probably didn't know about some punk kid teaching golf in Toronto. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? So, um, <laughs> I was fortunate enough that a gentleman at home tried to start a, or started a golf academy down here, um, and asked me to run it. And that's how I got a, uh, a visa because, it wasn't difficult until 9-11. I remember before 9-11, when we come down to the U.S., we didn't have to show a passport. We just had to show our license. So um, as far as getting a visa to work in America became much more difficult um, and, and, and continues to be. So um, and that's not really right or wrong. It's just what it is, right? So, um, and so you don't have American citizenship? No, I'm, I'm a green card holder. So I started like on an investor's visa, moved on to a different visa, then to a green card, and then we can apply um, for citizenship at some point. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've moved around so much in my life that it, it just feels natural for me to, when I'm in one place for like 12 years, it feels weird because I've never really been in a place for more than four. Um, but, you know, once you have kids and stuff, you settle down. Um, and we're in a nice neighborhood, a nice part of town. My, we have a lot of nice friends and stuff. So that's why we're at Windermere, where we're at. And then, you know, I had a really good business going at home in Toronto, and everyone thought we were crazy for coming down here because my wife was doing very well, too, in her own passion of the IT industry. But she pretty much sacrificed her whole career um, to come down. And, I mean, she runs everything I do. There's, I'm, like, basically useless without her. Um, <laughs> You know, like, yes. like I, 
I don't even know if I could book a rental car on an app. Like she's amazing. (laughs) She makes it very easy for me just to focus on the things that I do. I don't, I don't have much commotion on like, having to do extra things um hey that makes that's what makes a great team then you know you know your skill sets oh, and yeah. she knows hers right oh yeah no no she's way more skilled than i am so um you know we we did that and you know i guess to a lot of people it just looked like a bad idea but i've just always believed like things are going to work out and it'll all be okay there's like a deep meta perspective in me that knows that things will be okay period and um yeah, so when you took that leap, though, to to move down to Florida and do this, and people think you're crazy, did that motivate you to prove people wrong? No, I've never been motivated. Look, you and I and everyone we know are just fighting that other person in our head, right? All, all There's actually nothing happening outside of me except for what I regard as happening. So when you start realizing that the math of life is inside out, it's not outside in, um, I'll give an example. One of my players said, man, I can't handle this slow play. And I said, well, what about yesterday? He's like, well, yesterday was a way better paced play. And I said, yesterday it took five hours and 10 minutes to play, and today it took five hours. So yesterday it took longer. Well, how can I see that so differently? Because based on the mood you're in, you're going to create a whole different existence. So if I'm in a bad mood and I get to PSA in the airport, it's going to be like suffering. Whereas if I'm in a good mood... I just sit there and like smile at babies walking by. So the fact is, it's like when, when people say, oh, I'm stressed by traffic. It's like, are you stressed by traffic all the time? Well, not all the time. So technically, as a principle, traffic can't be a stressor. So the point I'm making is that circumstance and situation is what you create. Now, I'm not talking about like if someone has cancer or they're very sick. I'm just talking more about mentally so many of the conundrums and, and difficulties that human beings have getting along is they think the other person is the reason they feel the way they feel. But the fact of the matter is every human being on this planet is feeling the quality of their own thinking, which unfortunately sometimes um, can be uh, can be attributed to the mood they're in. Yes. Period. So how can people change that mood? Have you been able to figure that out? Because I think that's obviously... Well, impact somebody's golf game yeah but i think it's the key is just to i think one of the most powerful things that i've learned is like when i feel when it feels like the world's caving in around me i just know it isn't it just feels like that at that moment and just almost accepting that lifts it like it's it's like non-resistance it's like not resisting it it's just recognizing that, like, I'm not put on this earth to be happy every single day. It, that, that's not, like, Nelson Mandela became one of the greatest men to ever live. I can't tell you how happy he was sitting in jail for 27 years. So, like, you have to get through it to, you know, you have to get through it to get to it. Like, you've got to go through it. And, you know, I think we're so busy, you know, with all these self-help books on the eight steps to spiritual enlightenment, the seven steps to happiness. It's like... What if I miss step four? Like, it's ridiculous to me, right? And people people all read these books and still end up on antidepressants because those books are not quantifying principles. It's just opinions and, and jargon, and it sounds fancy and good. But, like, when I'm grateful, I haven't done anything to be grateful. I'm just grateful. And then when I'm guilty and shameful, it's it's like I can make a mistake and feel ashamed, and then I can make a mistake at another time and be like, all right, it is what it is, and so I be- basically my advice to people is 
you know, when you're just sitting there driving your car and these thoughts kind of pass by you, is just to watch them pass by you. Don't look into them. There's, there's, you don't need to look into them. There's just, our brain is full of so much messaging from TV and society and growing up and doing all that, that the memory is the memory and the memory is, is the memory is necessary, right? Our memory is the reason that we're not extinct. But the problem is, is that like homo sapiens and human beings are kind of pre-programmed to remember the bad because we have to know way, way back that if we didn't prepare for a cold winter, we'd all starve. So we have to remember that. And so to me, I think so many people are trying to understand life and the way it is, and it gets them a little more lost rather than just accepting. Like, I think acceptance is more important than understanding in many situations. And when you were in Florida, was there a moment where you felt that that the coaching thing was gaining a lot of momentum? And what was that moment that kind of tipped the the scales, so to speak, in your favor? Well, when Stephen Ames, uh, the Canadian golfer, when he called me, um, that was pro- that's when I knew it, it would work out. I knew I knew if I could just get my foot in the door, I would be fine. Um, and it, it, that's not I'm not saying that from a place of arrogance. I just knew what I was capable of, and 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 knew what I wanted to do, and and how I wanted to do it. So you know, until I have that opportunity, um, you know, that's why so much of what is happening to me is luck. And people will say, well, you're very humble. But when you understand the story that I've been through, you realize how all these opportunities just kind of happened. If they didn't, then where am I? So it's, I think that you can't have gratitude if you don't have humility. And if you haven't been humbled by life, you won't be grateful for it. So we need one to feel the other. I need, I need pain to understand joy. I I need you know, I, I need failure to recognize success. Like, whereas we're trying to get one without the other, you know what I mean? That just doesn't, if someone had only ever felt joy in their life, they wouldn't necessarily know they were joyful. You know what I mean? I do. Yes. And so what were some of those humbling experiences or some of those moments as you're going through this coaching journey where you did feel pain? Oh, just, you know, just the mistakes I made with players techniques and the mistakes I made with taking on, you know, more players than I could handle. And just, I mean, there, there's a million, I couldn't even list them. <laughs> I couldn't even, I, 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 I couldn't even, I couldn't even list them, you know, it's, and, and, and the thing is you realize that it's important that, that you can address that because say, for example, I went to a, a, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, right? Imagine if I went to an AA meeting and I said to my counselor, so like, how did drinking affect your life? And he's like, oh, I've never touched this stuff. Like he wouldn't be a very good counselor, would he? That would be a difficult one to listen to. That's right. You need somebody who's had the experience. Well, the thing is, is like his greatest strength is going to be empathy and non-judgment. So how could he have empathy if he hadn't been through it? So, you know what I mean? So, you yes. have, like I said, you have, to, you have to go through it to get to it. So when I have a young kid now that I'm coaching and he's down on his luck or he's down on his mind or he's down on whatever, and he's not appreciating like the difficult road to the summit and the impossible climb, I can just tell him, look, you know, I've been through this a hundred times. Just keep, just keep doing what you're doing and, and do it with discipline and do it with focus and it'll all change. It'll all change. And they just have to, they, they just, they just have to trust you. Um, like I, I, I have this, I, I have this feeling like we're all where we're supposed to be. And, and, and once again, I don't, 
I don't, that's not being offensive to people who are sick with disease or anything like that. I'm talking more uh, mentally and, so, and, and spiritually, right? So when I was here in 2006, I was where I was supposed to be. Sure, I had a great opportunity, but if I had been like, man, I've come down here and I should have so many more players than I have right now, that's just being arrogant again because uh, no one knew who I was. So that's where it should have been. So when people at home were saying, you know, you should be doing better by this point. It's like, not really. I should be exactly where I'm at. And Justin Rose now, and after 10 years, and all we've learned together and, and all the great people who have been around him, when people are like, man, it's amazing you're number one now, it's not really amazing, you know? Like, he's where he's supposed to be uh, because his understanding of himself, his ability to play the game, when those things net out, he's number one. It, it's not – there's no – nothing magical about it i've watched the guy literally architect the whole thing and was there a plan b for you if you weren't going to be coaching uh not really i think plan b's it's like a bad it's for me anyways it's a bad way to think like you know plans what winston churchill say plans are the most important thing and useless at the same time so like (laughs) they had a plan you know they had a plan for what they were going to do in france and next thing you know you've got He's got to make the call, and there's, what, hundreds of thousands of fishing boats from England bringing the troops back and probably saved 300,000 men that those two days. So, like, they had a plan, but it's like, you know, I, it's like I said, I think a plan is important, but I think more important is adapting to the situation in that moment. And I think that, that that's more important. But I, I guess – you know, when people call it like, do you have a fallback plan? A fallback plan. I, I don't remember who said it, but there was a, like a really successful guy. And he said, I always wanted to have a, a not a fallback plan, but a fall forward plan because I wanted to see what I was falling on. Um, it was just, I thought it was like a cute comment, but not, I mean, not really. It's just pretty much since I was 10, my life has been, my interests have been golf, philosophy, and hip-hop music. And that's like, I'm the same at 44, like exactly the same. Um, I've never really, I never really went off in too many other like uh, streams. It's just always been pretty constant, like maybe OCD. I don't know. I, I, you know, you can be a certain way and then someone says, oh, that's that. And you're like, all right, that's what some psychologist who doesn't understand consciousness called a certain thing that someone has, right? And so what's on your uh, hip-hop playlist right now? Um, basically, you know, there's obviously, like, there's obviously, like, rap music, and then there's trap music, and then there's hip- hip-hop. Hip-hop is its own culture. Uh, this is, I don't listen to rap music. I listen to hip-hop. So basically, hip-hop to me is, like, pretty much kind of street poetry over jazz-infused beats. So most of the people I listen to have never been on the radio. Um, I'm always trying to learn, so that goes down to even music. As much as I listen to music, I listen to music so much that when I enter certain airports without my headphones on, like a lady at the American Airlines desk who I don't remember ever meeting is like, where's your headphones? (laughs) That's how much I listen to. Okay, yes. Um, you know, that's how much I listen to music. And, uh, yeah, I've, I've always like, as a kid, been a big hip hop and reggae fan. My mom is from the West Indies. So kind of reggae music was, was around often. Um, 
And once again, you know, singers like Bob Marley and, and, and Steel Pulse and those reggae bands were very conscious. They were talking about the, 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 the struggles of their time and, and, um, you know, discussing, I mean, you look at Bob Marley lyrics from the sixties and what he was talking about now is still exactly the same problem. Inequality, racism, sexism, it's all, you know, the isms and schisms that have been around since the start of man and woman. So, um, I'm just, you know, I guess some people think I'm a deep person or whatever. Um, I just know that what I put on my, what I, what I listen to is my brain is hearing. So why would I listen to garbage when, you know, I think it's a very, I think our brain and our hearts just a really, you know, it's a sacred place. So you got to be careful on, you know, who you're around, what you're listening to and, and, and who is influencing you. Because even if you don't know people are influencing you, um, your brain hears everything that's going on, um, everything that's going on. And so has there been a big shift in your philosophy in terms of, I know you're a biomechanical guy and can look at it from a, you know, the kinetic side of golf swing, but how much is just attributed back to the brain versus actual mechanics of a swing? Yeah, well, that's the thing is, right, is like, it's very important to understand that because like pretty much all these guys on tour will always be fighting the original things that they learned. So original learning is just massive. Like it has such a, I think that's where I'm safer now than I ever was. It's just recognizing that one, the thing the player doesn't like is something that he has to embrace because he's done it so often. There's like no way out of it. There's, there's a way now to improve him physically or his golf swing in certain places to accommodate what he does. But, you know, you, you can't, I think when I was younger, I, I tried to turn tigers into leopards, you know what I mean? And, 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 and tried to turn rhinos into hippos, whereas a rhino's a rhino. Um, and so I think it's, I think it's being sensitive and accommodating to recognize what that player did from 10 to 14 years of age before he really had any help man, that thumbprint is really unique and it's super, it's as ingrained as a tattoo. And so it hurts more to get a tattoo removed than it does to get one. And speaking of tigers and you obviously coach Tiger Woods, what did you learn from coaching Tiger Woods that you use now? Oh gosh. I mean, I mean, I mean, if I wrote them all down, it would be thousands of them, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, it's tough being Tiger Woods. People don't appreciate that, you know, when he gets to a tournament, you know, the amount of security protocols and those those types of things, like all those years, I guess what I learned, the, the, the one thing I learned more than anything was just how incredible um, what he did, like what he did for how long he did it um, was just mind-blowing, like, just being number one in the world for 600 weeks and then seeing really closely what that looked like. Um, you know, 20,000 people on the whole screaming the whole time. Um, normally at his opponents, but regardless, it's still like, <laughs> it's still like, it's, it's still like, it's still like a rock concert. And, uh, just the sheer, just the so much fame that he'd been, that he'd been in. And, and I mean, I would say that tiger at one point is definitely most, three recognizable faces in the world. Well, 
what percentage of 7.2 billion people on this planet have ever picked up a golf club? I mean, we're in way less than 1%, right? So that's when you supersede your sport and you become, you know, so much bigger than that, um, it's almost on a Michael Jackson, you know, Beatles level, right? Yes, it is. Well, that's not, that's not easy to, you know, that's not easy to live with. Um, yeah. Was it hard on you from a coach perspective to be in the middle of all of that? Well, it's a different time, right? Because it's like, I start with Tiger roughly a year after, um, you know, a- after all those adversities in his life. So not necessarily the same person, right? Every experience we have, uh, changes us, um, and so, yeah, it was different because, you know, I, I kind of technically I knew I was going to be a punching bag and I, and I was, but that, that's okay. It doesn't matter. I mean, I, I, uh, I would say I, I learned really quickly that I couldn't go online. I couldn't read anything and I couldn't watch anything. And that's the best thing that ever happened to me because I don't do that. I don't do that anyways now, period. So it's the thing is, it's like, it's really difficult to read articles about yourself where you're quoted as saying something and you didn't even do the interview. And then, you know, it's, it, we're in a, we're, we're unfortunately as the paradigm has shifted from more people dying from overeating than dying from malnutrition. Well, the other issue is now in that paradigm is that it's not innocent till proven guilty. It's guilty till proven innocent. And then after that, it's been spread so much that people just make their mind up. And I mean, you just have to, you just have, you know, what you have to do so often, you know, you just have to surrender to it. It's just like, it is what it is. I mean, I could have avoided all of it by saying, no, I'm not going to work with you. So everything that's happened to me, good or bad, I'm responsible for. And I think when you take ownership, like, you know, when you take ownership like that, because ownership is the only thing that mathematically makes sense, there's kind of this level of peace that just comes over you, regardless of how chaotic it is outside of you. And you had mentioned earlier on some of the similarities between golf and life. So what do you feel are some of the lessons from golf that can teach you about life? Well, you know, it's just like anything, like in any sport, you know, you got to be on time. You got to be prepared. Um, you got to spend time outside of playing to improve your ability to play. Um, you know, you're over in the corner of that rough and that ball doesn't, that ball moves and no one saw it. You know, you have a choice to make at that moment. Um, you can hit good shots that get hit in the wind and you get bad breaks and you get, you know, you get all these different aspects. But as far as character, I mean, I remember my dad is a pretty wise guy. And back in the day, he was a sales guy at DuPont and he in the early seventies started to play golf and then realized like, man, I, I think I should do business on the golf course because you get on the golf course and you see a guy who's normally calm and, you know, pretty at peace or whatever. And on the third hole, he starts throwing clubs and swearing and freaking out. Gives you a pretty good look into how he, ha- how he handles, you know, how he handles success and, and, and failure. So, you know, he makes a putt and he pumps his fist and he three putts and he throws his putter. And so, you know, it's probably good to know that when push comes to shove in the sales world and you're about to do that deal, there's a good chance he may lose his head. For sure. So, you know, it's, it's, it's things like that. Of course. And do you consider yourself a salesman? Oh, we're all, who's not, who, who, we're all selling ourselves at all times, right? So much to the point now that, you know, people go on social media and sell themselves to companies. I mean, it's just, we're always, 
we're always selling ourselves. And, um, you know, I mean, we all are. There, there's even people who aren't in sales. Call the doctor. He's selling himself. If I, if I have an issue with my shoulder and I go see three guys, the guy I pick is going to be obviously the guy who I'm going to be at the three guys who are, I've been told to go to who are technically going to be perceived as the best, right? Yes. But I'm going to end up choosing one, whether it's because there's this unseen energetic chemistry that we have um, that you can't really put your finger on, but it's there. I mean, look, I'm, I'm married to one woman for 15 years. There was probably a hundred women that I dated after a month I wanted to marry. And there was only one left after a month and a week. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Yeah. Who knows, who, who knows what it is or why it is, right? Like there, it, it, I just think there's, there's things that we don't understand that we may never that are going on. And I think it's all based on energy. And, you know, my friend was discussing to me the other day, this, the topic of equality. And I said, well, I think the scientists have equality figured out more than the religious leaders and political leaders. And he said, why is that? I said, because um, he's an Indian guy and I'm obviously a Canadian guy. I said, what's different about you and I? He's like, where we came from, you know, the food we eat, our culture, our religion. I go, okay. I said, I, I think that style, the dynamics of life are the fact that you and I are made up of a trillion cells at the base of every cell is an atom. Um, there's a neutron that houses an electron and proton and we're 85% water. There's nothing about you and I that's different at all. Our spleens have the same function. Our liver has the same function. Our colon has the same function. So the thing is they've just made up this story to prove inequality. We couldn't be more equal. We couldn't be more the same. You and I are exactly the same. So, I think when you're able to see that everything is one, then you're just your admission of others is so much higher because you realize that 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 I'm you and you are me. Um, and you know, I know that's a bit heavy, but it's not really that heavy. It, it actually makes a lot of sense. And I think that we need to look to math and science to help us make sense because so much of it is just opinion, and we're kind of at a point in this democracy now, and, and not just this democracy, but all around the world in democracies is we're at a point where your ignorance is equal to my knowledge of wealth. And that's just not the case, right? Like that's just never true. So, um, yeah, it's, it is a, is a, is a fascinating time. It's not unlike times that we, that my father hadn't gone through and his father hadn't gone through and his father hadn't gone through. But in my lifetime, um, the amount of confusion and commotion, uh, it's, 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 it's very interesting right now. Yeah, and it's all about can you create you know a pathway to avoid all of the noise that is out there and come back to what you just described, and I think that makes a lot of sense that we are all equal. But you know you can right you you, you can you don't have to buy into the times like for example uh, I don't have one social media uh, account not one. And I cannot tell you the amount of people who have told me how much money you're leaving on the table and you could be doing this, this, and this, but that's just not something I want to be. I don't want to be in my life. Like I know myself too well. Like I know I could never go on that and not read the comments. Like I know I couldn't. So I just don't do it. It's like, I'm not going to spend four years like meditating in Tibet till I totally change who I am as a person. <laughs> I once again, I'm, you know, I once again, I'm going to go back to acceptance and know 
that with my personality, that if I started to do that, I'd be doing it. So I avoid it. And then the, the other side of it is that I'm not on it. And I just don't think people realize how much of a grip it ends up getting on you. This whole idea of getting a like, right? Like these girls sending out pictures of themselves and just sitting at home waiting to see how many likes they get. Like, God, you just got to have so much love for yourself. Like it doesn't, who gives a shit what anyone else thinks about you? Because the thing for me, it's not even my business what you think of me. Like you're allowed to have your own opinion. But for the most part, like when people are being highly critical of you, one, it's kind of a stamp of success because it seems that like even Warren Buffett has people who say he doesn't know anything about investing money, but he's like worth $80 billion, right? Yes, that's and right. All, all the commentators are saying Tom Brady did this last night. He should have done this. It's like you stand on the field looking at these men come and trying to rip your neck off, right? So to me, until someone really spends like a week with me and follows me and every single footstep I could take, at the end of that week, if they really didn't like me, then I'd be fine with that because they at least took a chance to look deeper into what it is. So it's just you realize when people are criticizing you, maybe – Maybe you just become a mirror and they just see themselves in you. And so maybe they're not even criticizing you. Maybe they're just criticizing themselves. And so, you know, it's all good. Like, like I said, if you want to be at the top of anything, then you have to understand that the, the world underneath you um, is going to come after you. And that's fine. Like, it's, it's like if you tell me something really positive and great, it doesn't do anything for my confidence. And if you, you know, rip me and say I'm a fraud, it doesn't do anything against my confidence. So like I said, I'm, I'm constantly uh, in this battle to beat that other guy in, in my head. That's right. To that inner competition and also what I believe in, never get too high, never get too low. And speaking of words of wisdom like that, as we wrap up here, Sean, and I can't thank you enough for your time, what about words of wisdom that has meant a lot in your life uh, that you would like to share? Yeah, I mean, you know, if I have any skill, it's just being able to remember like awesome quotes. And, um, I remember when my wife, <laughs> when she first came over to my place, like when, when I, when I first, um, met her, um, and she had come from work. So she wanted to take a shower before we went out and <laughs> she walks into my bathroom. She's probably pretty freaked out because like where all the tile was this picture like laminated quotes covering the whole map. So, you know, uh, you know, things like Gandhi saying that, you know, we need to be the change that we want to see, right? Like it's got to start, it's got to start, you know, it's got to start with us. Things like I would have a quote like that and I'd put it on my thing. And then I would just really like in my downtime, I would just kind of put that quote into the universe in my mind and just really look deeply into what does that mean? Like, one of the things I say to all my young players is be a pro. And, you know, what, what, it, what does that mean? Like being a pro, being a pro means that you're not looking for a quarter before you tee off so you can mark your ball. Being a pro doesn't mean that if your tee off is at eight o'clock and the range is 15 minutes from the first tee that you need to run over there with 12 minutes left. Being a pro means you're teeing off at 9am. Don't stay up till 2am. You're being a pro means we absolutely know that looking at blue light affects our sleep. So come eight o'clock, get off your phone. Like being a pro is just, once again, it's all those tiny, small things. 
Um, you know, as far as like being a dad, being a pro means like when I go to my son's basketball game, leave my phone in the car. Like just, just those little things where we need to be thoughtful and, 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 and focused. And I think like one of my other favorite quotes, uh, is by uh, Nelson Mandela. They asked Mandela about, um, how he was able to forgive the people who had created all these atrocities towards him in jail and what have you. And he said, well, I learned early in jail that a man drinks poison and thinks it's going to make the other man sick. So he knew that all that resentment and hatred that he had for those people was having more an effect on him than it was having on them. So, you know, just there's thousands, like there's just, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of them. But, um, you know, I have one tattooed on my arm uh, and it's the, from the second verse of Redemption Song by Bob Marley, and it says, uh, emancipate yourselves from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. So it's like, stop looking outside. Stop looking outside of yourself. Look, we were all born, and we're all sweet and lovely kids. Um, you know, I was in the airport a few weeks ago, and there was these two little kids, and they were adorable. And so I, I was kind of in the security line, and we were kind of playing hide-and-seek. So I was... I would like, they'd hide behind their parents and they'd start to giggle. And then I would giggle and we were laughing and they were just adorable. And, um, it made me realize like I need to see the children in my own children. Sometimes when I'm getting on them, I'm like, okay, they're a child. So <laughs> it's it, it just, if it, my own kids are running around that TSA security that day, I, I would have grabbed them by the neck. You know what I mean? So <laughs> it was, it was, right. a, it was a pivotal, it was a pivotal moment in parenting that didn't come from a book, but, um, and then I kind of looked up and the dad wasn't like, he was checking me out. Like what's wrong with this guy. Right. And I said to him, I said, it's funny that we have to grow up and get educated and go to school to then not get along with each other. And I think that's it. Right. Like we, no one starts out as Ted Kaczynski. No one starts out as Osama bin Laden. No one starts out as anything like that. You know, we start out and we need a community to raise us and we need our mom and we need our dad. And, you know, when people say stop acting like a kid, it's like, well, that kids have fun, right? They play. Um, and as we get older, we just start to take ourselves so serious. And, uh, you know, I think that's uh, when it becomes difficult. Agreed. And I think one of the first things we lose is just that feeling of love. And that's probably the first feeling we ever embrace is love uh, coming straight well, out of the, the womb. Thing is, it, it, it's interesting, though, because you look at people, it's like obviously the most integral thing that we need as human beings um, is love. And when you look at entanglement theory and physics, they did a, they did a, uh, a study, I forget what university with rabbits and uh, they were studying entanglement and entanglement's part of like metaphysics and what have you. So the interconnection between all things and um, they took a rabbit and put it in the room and then took the baby rabbits and, uh, you know, basically, I guess, kind of broke the baby rabbit's neck. And at that time, the mother was in another room and absolutely lost it, right? And then they did the same thing. They took a rabbit all the way to California, and it did the same thing. And at that same moment, that rabbit freaked out. So when and, and I understand it's kind of a morbid, gross, like, study they did, but but I think that, you know, along uh, along those lines, that that love is just so important and that, you know, there's been a lot of people who didn't have much, their parents didn't have much, uh, they didn't grow up in great neighborhoods, but they had that love and they were able to really like muster on and become 
successful. Um, so yeah, of course, like, you know, technically my sons are born on third base and the guy up batting has got no strikes and there's no outs. They have a serious privilege and a serious advantage, um, to be successful. But people will say that because they go to private school, they live in an affluent area, all that. But the fact of the matter is there's a lot of kids I see who grow up in the same area, but I don't necessarily have that same feeling or that optimism about their future because I can tell that that's the one thing that they're not feeling is like that love and that importance. Like, you know, because you do a bad job, like getting your kid a BMW when they're 16 doesn't fix what's been done. You know what I mean? So, um, it's interesting. It's, I mean, I say the word interesting probably a billion times a day because it's just almost everything is um, interesting. <laughs> well, from your perspective, I know that is so true. And I could talk to you for hours about some more of your philosophical ideas and what you do find interesting. Uh, but, Sean, I really appreciate the time that you've spent today here on the podcast. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for the thanks for the uh, thoughtful questions. That was great. Understanding the true source of pressure is really just the first step in being able to overcome that so-called pressure in order to achieve whatever type of success that you're aiming for. And as Sean talked about, that pressure is really just something that comes from within our own self. But eventually, if you're able to recognize that enough and fully love yourself, no matter what other noise is around you, then that's when success can be achieved because you can be a pro. Now that finishes episode 95. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Takes Sports. Thanks for listening.